John chapter 3, and uh, like I said, probably the, the most famous, uh, holds the most famous verse in all of Scripture, which uh, we're going to get to next week. Um, but as you turn there, I want to make a bit of a confession, and, and uh, I think I've shared this before, and so uh, this is just going to prove my confession. The confession is, is that I have a terrible memory. <laughs> All right. So what I'm about to tell you, uh, I've probably told you before. And so uh, I say it again. Uh, there are some things I don't remember. A lot of things I don't remember. Um, but one of the things that I'm certain that all of us don't remember is the day we were born. All right. So, so I brought a piece of paper and this is called my birth certificate. And on here, you will see that William Jared Brooks was born on July 18th, 1978 at 6.50 p.m. at Methodist Hospital up here on Union. And uh, my mama signed it. My doctor, or I guess my doctor, he was my doctor, signed it. And the state of Tennessee sealed it. And so the fact that I'm holding this piece of paper and that I'm standing here right now, I think is proof that that birth took place, right? So, so I'm here and, and we share uh, we share perhaps this fact that, that we don't remember this day for our lives, right? I don't remember the day I was born. I don't remember July 18th, 1978, but with crystal vivid clarity, I remember the day that I was reborn. That day for me was June 27th, 1989. I was 10 years old. Uh, as far as I knew, I've shared my testimony before. As far as I knew, I, had, I, was in, I was in a church service like from day one. And on that particular day, it was a revival service at my church. And I had gone and I'm sure the message was great. I'm sure the people responded to the message. But all I could think about was getting to the gym as quickly as possible to play basketball. Because that's what we did every time I went to church. And then this eighth grader named Stephen Howe stepped in front of me on my way to the gym and he simply looked at me and he asked me this question. He said, Jared, do you want to be saved? And I looked at him and I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and he took me, this eighth grader took me uh, at the time of fourth grader. And we went to a, uh, inside a Sunday school classroom and he opened his Bible and he walked me through the good news, the gospel message of Jesus. And it was on that day, on that evening that I admitted my sin and I repented of my sin and I placed my faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And I can look back and I can, I can with complete peace rest that that was the day that I was reborn. That was my new birth. It's, it says the Bible talks about if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. For me, it was that day and my life has not been the same ever since. And so that was the day I was reborn. Now, I want to be honest with you. If I'm having a conversation with somebody outside of these four walls or in the community and I, I, that I'm aware of that they may not be a believer or a Christian, I'm sensitive to the lingo I use. Because right? there, there is a Christian lingo. There are words that Christians know and say and are, are common, and they're not so common out there. And maybe one of those words is this idea of being reborn or born again. But I love that word picture. I love that phrase. 
And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think probably the reason I love it the most is because that's the word picture that Jesus Christ chose to describe saving faith. I love it. That's the picture. And so today we are going to be part one of a two-part gospel conversation between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the most religious person that you could ever possibly meet, a man named Nicodemus. And out of this text, we are going to see one central truth that is so simple, and perhaps we've heard it a million and one times, but we'll hear it one more time through the text. And the truth is this, that a person must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. That that is the central main idea. A person must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Born again, again, refers to that that time and place where a sinner acknowledges their sin and need for forgiveness. They have a change of mind about their sin. They turn to Jesus, his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, and surrender their hearts to him as Lord of their lives. That is saving faith. And so that refers to that born again. Kingdom of God is a word. It's kind of an already not yet reality in that as a believer who has accepted Jesus as Lord, we live under the rule and reign of God. But yet there will be a day where all are subject to his rule and reign. So we're going to jump into these first few verses in John chapter 3. But before we do, I think it's important that we read a couple verses in chapter 2, the end, before we get in. Because chapter sections and verses are super helpful for us, aren't they? Uh, because if we didn't have those, it'd be like, hold on, I'm not there yet. Let me find it. Find the, find the words that say this. Um, but the story that we're reading actually starts in the few verses before we ever get there. And so, so again, just kind of reflecting back what, what just happened in John 2, Jesus has cleansed the temple. It's Passover. And so there's multitudes of people there. Jesus has cleansed the temple. And the Bible says that many people believed. And so I want to go back to John chapter 2. I want to start in verse 23 and then work our way into chapter 3. The Bible says this, John 2 verse 23. Now when he, Christ, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and in needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So many believed, many believed, but this word for belief does not refer to that true life-changing, genuine, authentic, saving faith. This rather speaks of a, a superficial, shallow, intellectual faith. It's, it's an intellect that starts here, but it never travels its way down to the heart. If you were a student and took part in denial last weekend, it would be what Pastor Dean referred to as an, as an unsaved Christian. Or what Warren Wearsby describes as an unsaved believer, which we know that there's no such thing. But it would be a person who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, check the box. But there's been zero life transformation in their heart. There's zero relationship. And so as you see that, it's simply no more than just intellectual agreement. It's folks that want the experience and they want the exciting benefits, but their hearts are far from God. 
And what Jesus said is many, many fit that description. And yet Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so here's some encouragement for us this morning. And this is encouragement. Is that in all of our messiness and our sin and our issues and our struggles and in those areas of our lives that we don't honor the Lord as we know that we desire to, want to, or, or think we should. Here's some great encouragement is Jesus loves us still. He loves us still. And so as we are walking into this passage, let's look at John chapter three, verse one. And we're going to meet one of the many that we just read about in those few verses just before. The Bible says this in John chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. I want to stop right there. We learn a lot about, uh, I, I can't. I always think of Nick at night every time I read this, this story because uh, he's Nicodemus and I want to say Nick and it's night, but it shows my generation, right? And so, uh, so we learn a lot about Nick. He was a man, he was a Pharisee, his name was Nicodemus and he was a ruler of the Jews. He had, if you're looking for somebody with super, superstar spiritual credentials, like somebody that like has like the religious thing down on lock. This is the guy. I mean, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was passionate about the law. Pharisees were zealous for the law, the Old Testament law. For a Pharisee, they would be 100% like all in devoted committing to keeping all 613 Old Testament commands that you could be found in Scripture. In those, there are 448 do's, 365 don'ts. And this brother's life was all wrapped up in the ritual and the obedience of the law. He was passionate about the law. So passionate that, that they felt there needed to be more kind of guardrails and commandments on top of the 613 to ensure that you didn't mess, uh, mess up on the original 613. Like, so for example... Um, keep the Sabbath holy. It's one of those 10 commandments we read about in the old Testament. Well, that wasn't enough. Like we need some clarifiers here. And so they built in some, some additional two scripture clarifiers. One of which is it is forbidden on the Sabbath to spit, to spit on the ground. You can't spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground, it might, it might create a, a burrow or a hole in the soil. And if, if you do that, that might be considered plowing and plowing is work and you can't work on the Sabbath. So you just don't spit it all on the ground on the Sabbath. But this brother's heart, like he has, he was zealous for the law. The old Testament law, listen, is right and perfect and holy. It was a gift from God. But the thing is this, the whole purpose of the law shows us we can't keep it. Like we're not perfect. So we need a savior. So the law points us to the savior, Jesus. And so, but for Nicodemus, man, he is locked in. He's a ruler of the Jews. That means he is not only one of about 6,000 Pharisees that exist during Jesus's time, but he is one of 71 people that are a part of what's known as the Jewish Sanhedrin. It's like the Jewish Supreme Court. If you take our Supreme Court and you take our Senate and you make one body, that's who the Jewish Sanhedrin is. And Nicodemus was one of those 71 people. And he's one of the many. Verse two, the Bible says, this man came to Jesus by night. 
I'm going to be honest. I am jumping to assumptions. We can do that sometimes. The reality is I have no idea why he met with Jesus at night. It could have been for multiple reasons. It could have been one for fear. It could have been John 1, chapter 1 tells us that as far as Christ coming to bring life and light, that his own people rejected him. And so here's, here's Nicodemus, a Pharisee ruler, like passionate about the zeal. If he was seen with Jesus, it would be a mess. I don't know if he was married, but his wife found out or his kids found out. Like this could be, this could be a disaster. So maybe it was fear. It might have been like many of us. We have jobs and we work those jobs. And so we work a full day. And, and so I don't know what Nicodemus's day might have looked like. Perhaps he had a full day of work and, and this was when he could finally sit down and, and, and have a conversation. And it also might be the time of the day where this is where he could have unhurried, unhindered time with Jesus. That at the end of the day, for some of us, maybe that's kind of where your quiet time is. Right, You hit the road, you hit the day rolling, and then you have this bit of reprieve there at the end of the night. And so in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus greets Jesus with a title of respect. He calls him a rabbi. Nicodemus was a rabbi. And so in some ways, not only is he giving him respect in his greeting to him, but he's also approaching him as an equal. Hey, you're a, you're a rabbi, Jesus. I'm a rabbi. We're rabbis together. Like there's this, this respect going on with one another, but, but respect can be very misleading because Nicodemus says, I know you're a teacher come from God, but Jesus is God and he's come to teach man. He's, he's missing it. No one can do these signs unless God is with him, right? Because Jesus is God. And every miracle he performs in the New Testament serves to solidify and concrete the fact that he is God. But Nicodemus is missing it. And as we walk through this text today, I want us to see three traps. And these traps serve to hinder authentic, genuine, saving faith. But here's the thing about these traps. They are invisible. You don't see them, you know, and traps, you set traps for typically one of three reasons. One, you want to stop whatever is, is, is going on, whatever that thing is that needs to stop. You set a trap to stop it Two, to paralyze it or debilitate it or three to ultimately kill it. I've kind of got hunting in my mind. You set these traps. Why are you setting the traps? You want to stop them. You want to debilitate them. You want to kill them. And so here are three traps that we're going to see through this text. And I want us to be sensitive to these traps because it could be that there's somebody here today or listening in that finds themselves susceptible to one of these traps. Or you have somebody you love who you see falling into one of these traps. And so the first trap that we're going to see is the respect trap. The respect trap. And the encouragement is don't mistake respect for God with knowing God. Don't mistake respect for God for knowing God. It's true. An individual can show respect for God and they can do so without really correctly knowing who they are. Nick was one of the many. He was one of the many. James, the half brother of Jesus tells us in James 2, 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe 
and shudder. Nicodemus identifies Christ as a rabbi. It's a term of respect, but that's as far as it goes. I would imagine if you, if Nicodemus was completely upfront and honest and somebody who came up to him after this conversation and they said, hey, do you know Jesus? And he's completely honest. He might say yes, but it's purely a respect and an acknowledgement that Jesus is Jesus and there's no true genuine belief. This spurs to mind a sobering, what I think is probably some of the most sobering scriptures that we have. I want to read this in light of Matthew 7, 21 and 23. The Bible says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That it is possible to have a respect for God and yet not know him personally. Islam respects Jesus as a good moral teacher. They respect Jesus as one of the almighty's Greatest messengers. And yet, even in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned 25 times. There is a respect for Jesus, but they do not know Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses have a respect for Jesus. They respect that Jesus is God's son, but that he is a creation of God, not God. That Jesus was only a perfect man and not God in the flesh. They respect Jesus, but yet they do not know Jesus. Buddhists respect Jesus and believe highly in Jesus because of the nature of their religion. But they respect Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Mormons respect Jesus, but they see him as a separate being apart from God the Father. Respect for Jesus all day long, but yet they do not know Jesus. And each one of these false religions show a respect, but they reject who he is. Americans, there's a research done by Barna. It's a few years old, but I think it helps us get a picture of the, the, the picture of our country. The, the, the study says that 92% of Americans believe Jesus is a real person. 92%. That, that's over 9 in 10 people. If you got them in a the room and said, do you believe in Jesus? They would say yes. I would even say perhaps there's a respect for Jesus. But if you ask the generation between 1984 and 2002, if Jesus is God, less than half say that he is. 48%. So there can be this incredible respect for God and respect for Jesus. But beware of the invisible trap that somehow respect for God means the same thing as a relationship with God. It's a trap. Verse three, the Bible says that Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus is not a a young person. He's likely more advanced in his age. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's got a lot of mileage under his belt, a lot of respect from the Jewish community. He is, he is the, the upper echelon of leadership, if you will, being on the Sanhedrin. But what Jesus is saying him, to him is, is boggling his mind. Because what Jesus is challenging him with is challenging the worldview that he has had his entire life. And what Jesus, in essence, is saying to Nicodemus, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, the most religious man you're going to find, is he says this, you aren't good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's messing him up because for him, he's a Jew, like he's got the bloodline thing down. Like he's part of God's chosen people. Like he, he's, if anybody's in, he's in. But yet Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew and it doesn't matter if you're a Greek, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, doesn't matter if you're a rabbi, doesn't matter if you, if you are on the Jewish Sanhedrin, like, like all those things, what matters is this is you can't be born again and see the kingdom of God apart from being born again. And it's messing with his head to be born again means to be born again from above, to be born from above. It's a picture of when a heart is truly transformed by the gospel, that God in his amazing grace and through the power of his spirit brings a deep conviction over our sinfulness in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is the great revealer of Christ as our only source of salvation and forgiveness. And so as we acknowledge our sin and respond to God's grace and his, the conviction in our life. And we surrender our hearts to King Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of our lives. This is a picture of what it looks like to be born again. But he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, unless one is born of water and spirit. So this can mean a couple different things. It can mean speaking to uh, being born of water. If a, if, a, if a mother is going to be giving birth. And as that due date or that arrival is, 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 is imminent, and we, we use the phrase, the water breaks, that the amniotic fluid, right? It's, the, it's that picture of, of, of go time, if you will, and, and the, that the baby is coming. So it could be to be born of water in that way, but he also says, and to be born of the spirit. This is, so you, you're, born, you're born a physical birth, but it's, you get, it's to be born again, to be born of the spirit that you must be born of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit convicts and draws and that person acknowledges their sin and owns their sin and repents and turns to Jesus as the Lord of their life. It could be that Jesus is referring to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Remember, this guy's gonna have the, the Old Testament on lock. And here's what Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28 says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave you to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your gods. And in a moment, we're going to hear Jesus say this to Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not know these things? In other words, he, he knows this. He knows this word. And so, again, the warning of the respect trap, but here's a, another trap, and that is the behavior trap. The behavior trap. Behavior trap, the warning here is don't mistake good behavior or being good with a transformed heart. We're talking about two different things. Barna's research, that same research I shared a moment ago, says this. Many adults believe that they will go to heaven as a result of their good works. That Barna says that the most common perception to which I would say invisible trap among Americans is, is this, and that they, those who have never made a commitment to Jesus. And so for Nicodemus, he thought it was about his bloodline, he's good to go. But in the West, we can have this same mentality. Obviously, a lot of people do. They think if my good outweighs my bad, then it's all going to work out. Or we do this comparison game and comparison trap and we begin to compare our lives to another person's life and well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. Or, or my mom was a Sunday school teacher or my daddy was a preacher or my, my mom was a missionary or my cousin, like all these different things. Just a, a week and a couple days ago, I had a gospel conversation with a lady and, and we had had some conversation that kind of led up to this question. I didn't just jump to this question, but I got there and I, and I, and I, I, I shared with her. I said, I said, ma'am, may I ask you a question? I said, would you describe yourself as having a personal relationship with Jesus? And she looked at me and the first thing she said was, I went to church when I was a kid. In other words, she is associating the fact that she went to church outward behavior with having a personal relationship with Jesus. The being connected in a faith family is the fruit of saving faith, but it is not saving faith. And so for so much of us, it's, and we can hear that and kind of go straight to the outward behavior and straight to these reasons. But one of the greatest, the enemy's greatest lies are these invisible traps that you get to heaven by being good. And what is sobering is that Hell is full of people that probably all of us would say are good people. Many, many. It's been said that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. And it also say he didn't come to make good people better, but he came to give life to dead people, spiritually dead. He came to bring life. Verse eight, the Bible says, the wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. And I love how Jesus connects the work of the Holy Spirit with that of wind. 2017, almost five, almost five years ago, my lovely bride, our crew, lived in central Florida. We live right there in the center of the state down there. And uh, we saw hurricanes come and go. 
and uh, you see the cone of uncertainty. And as you continue to watch the news, that cone of uncertainty becomes more certain. And so we found ourselves directly in the path of Hurricane Irma. That was 2017. As a matter of fact, we had some friends up here. I think you guys even felt some of the effects of that as, as it made its way up here back then. But here's the thing. The, the, the eye of the storm literally crossed over our house. And it's just like you hear described. It's like, it's like a train moving through. And then it was complete silence. And then the, the, the backside of the hurricane came through. And it happened at night. We got kids in the laundry room. We got kids in the hallway. Amber and I are just riding it out right there in the middle. And she's like, I'm never doing this again. And, and, and we, died, we decided to stick it out. And, and here's the thing. I would look out my windows and I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see the wind, but I saw the effects of the wind. I went outside. I remember as soon as daybreak, we were out in the yard, my neighbors, and we were out there and we were just looking around at the debris. And it's amazing how we never saw the wind, but yet we saw its effects. And so like the wind, the Holy Spirit is that he's teaching Nicodemus. You can't necessarily see it, but the effects of the Holy Spirit are unmistakable. It's unmistakable. You can't doubt or misinterpret the work of the Spirit in a person's heart. And Nicodemus, he's, he's, he's looking at Jesus and he's obviously struggling with making sense of it all. And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Just like the wind is unpredictable and uncontrollable, the work of the Holy Spirit is unmistakable. The Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and our need for a Savior. That's over in John 16. The Holy Spirit is the great comforter, revealer, teacher, reminder. John 14. The Holy Spirit is the source of revelation, wisdom, and power. 1 Corinthians 2.10, Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit is the giver of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit, I love this, intercedes for the struggling Christian. Romans 8. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us molds us, grows us, shapes us, and enables us to bear fruit. Galatians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit gives life. Romans 8, 10, and 11, the Holy Spirit is God, Acts 5. And there's way more scripture there. But we don't control the Holy Spirit. We don't predict the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit is at work, you cannot dispute a transformed heart. You can't. So here are these invisible traps Respect trap, don't mistake respect for God with knowing God. Behavior trap, don't mistake good behavior for a transformed heart. One more trap, and that is the intellect trap. Don't allow pride to hinder you from surrendering your life to Jesus. The Bible warns us, knowledge puffs up. And so, so, so to place your faith and trust in Jesus is intelligible. It is right, it is true. You don't check your mind at the door, your brain at the door. But for Nicodemus, he had so much. He's such an example of just having so much knowledge, but yet he's missing the whole point. If you think about Nicodemus's life to be a Pharisee, to be a ruler of the Jews, listen to this. By age 12, he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. This is, and put it in perspective, this is 187 chapters 5,852 verses, 156,058 words by age 12. The next 
few years, 13 to 15, they're memorizing what's called the Tanuk. It's the, what would be their picture of the entire Old Testament. So storing up that knowledge and truth and memorizing it, putting it in their head and putting it in their heart. And then not only that, then for the next 15 years, from age 15 to 30, they would basically kind of apply to, to, to be accepted by a rabbi for them to follow them and to follow their life. The imagery is of this apprentice rabbi uh, that he would be covered in dust because he's following the rabbi so closely that every step that the rabbi takes, it's, it's proof that he's following him. Like he would watch when he goes to sleep. When rabbi goes to sleep, I go to sleep. He would watch rabbi get up. He gets up when rabbi gets up. This is the way rabbi studies the Bible. This is the way he would study the Bible. And this was his life. But here is a sobering truth. Is that you can memorize every verse in the Old Testament and not enter the kingdom of God. That if it is all intellectual, shallow facts, and it never makes its way to a surrendered heart to the Lordship of Christ and the finished work on the cross, then the Bible teaches us that wide is the path that leads to destruction. So John is helping us. Why is he write it? John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. And that believing is placing your complete weight and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. That he came to give light to a spiritually dark world. He came to bring life to a spiritually dead world. And here is the encouragement. Traps are designed to paralyze you. Traps are designed to prevent you from moving forward. Traps are designed to to kill you. And here we see the respect trap. We see the behavior trap and we see that intellectual pride trap that all serve as hindrances. And all we know, and we'll see this next week, everything we know that, that this disciple or, or, or Nicodemus, that he leaves that encounter with Jesus. And as far as we know that he was, he was confronted in the most gracious, loving way. And yet, as far as we know, he walked away. But what we also know is that we're going to see Nicodemus in this gospel a couple more times. And we're going to see him a little later. Uh, and we're going to see Nicodemus defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And we're also going to see that, that Nicodemus is with Joseph of Arimathea, bringing myrrhs, aloes, and spices to anoint the body of Christ for burial before he's placed in the tomb. We don't know, but these sure, these sure do point to evidence that evidently that there was a time where perhaps Nicodemus was born again. And so as I wrap this message up in the most loving, gracious way, I just simply want to ask this question. Have you been born again? And the invitation this morning is going to be super, super simple. But in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. That's like we do most all Sundays. And we're going to have pastors here. And here's going to be my encouragement to you. If you are here today and, 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 and the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction on your heart, 
and he's revealing that perhaps you've been caught up in a respect trap. Perhaps you've been caught in a behavior trap. Perhaps you've been caught in a pride trap. Let's throw the traps away and respond to the single most important decision that you will ever make in your entire lives. And so I'm going to pray in just a moment. And if you're here and you are designed to begin a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to step out of that aisle and I want to invite you to come and I want you to talk to one of our pastors that'll be here. You don't have to talk to one of our pastors. We want to encourage you. We want to pray for you. It could be you're here and somebody you love so much is in one of those traps. And I want to invite you in this time to intercede and to pray for them. If you would feel so led as to come and pray at the altar. That, that even perhaps if your heart is wrestling with all we see in the world, it's just a heart of intercession. I want you to feel free to come and pray that there's freedom in this place to respond however God leads you. But I would I would plead, I would plead if you're here today and you got the first, you got the birth certificate, you got the, the physical thing locked down. But if the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction on your life and drawing you to himself, that you would acknowledge him and repent and believe and place your faith and trust in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this real life gospel conversation. And Father, I thank you that you have given us a front row seat to the, this crystal clear truth as it revolves to salvation. Is that you can be a super good person. You can be a super religious person. You can know all kinds of good information. But unless, unless a heart is born again, they will never see the kingdom of God. And so God, I am, I am, I am asking, interceding, praying for anybody who may be here today or listening in online who knows that they need to begin a relationship with you. And God, that there would be no hindrance. There would be no distraction. But Father, to take this step of obedience, this most important step that a soul could ever, ever take. And God, I pray for believers in the room. May we never get over God's amazing grace. And so as we know people who are in our circle of influence, family members, friends, coworkers, cousins, perhaps spouses, children, God, that we would be interceding, God, interceding, God, that we would pray and that we see that they would come to that time and place in their life like I did when I was 10, where they repent of their sin and trust in you and you alone for salvation. And God, I know there is a whole host of other scenarios and circumstances that our people are struggling with and walking through. But God, thank you that we do not walk alone, that you promise never to leave us. You promise never to forsake us. That God, you are not distant, but you are near. You are near the brokenhearted. 
God, I pray that you would manifest your tangible presence and love and care in every broken situation. So God, we love you and we praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.